Hello, and welcome to this episode of Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Alex Thomas, today's podcast host. This week, we're going to jump into Parliament, and particularly how it helps or hinders good policymaking. We all know the way it goes. The government triumphantly unveils a new policy or piece of legislation. Our elected representatives then take as much time as is needed to scrutinise, test, check that it's been thought through, built on rock-solid evidence, and will be sure to do what the government intends. Perhaps that only happens in the House of Lords. It's a good week to take a step back, because this week is Evidence Week in Parliament. We'll ask how good Westminster is at scrutinising policy and how much evidence is actually used when policies are designed, which will then lead us on to talk about just how much all this is down to what we expect from our MPs. What expertise and evidence should they actually bring? What should their job involve? How much should they get paid? And while we're talking about scrutiny, does the Prime Minister get scrutinised enough? Well, this week he skipped PMQs, but he did attend a committee hearing with MPs. Is that enough, or is it time for a new approach? So all that's to come with a top IFG duo alongside me throughout, senior researcher and parliamentary expert Alice Lilly. Hello, Alice. Hi, Alex. And programme director and in-house historian Kath Haddon. Hello, Kath. Hello. They've both spent the week busily scrutinising Johnny Bairstow's controversial dismissal. The Australians, that was totally fair play, wasn't it? (laughs) You know what, Alex, I think I've worked through it now. My emotions have calmed down. I'm focusing on on England women beating Australia women at the Oval on Wednesday night. I just followed the rules. That's what we're about at the <laughs> IFG. Uh, but no, agree with you on the uh, on last night. And I'm delighted that we're joined today by Tracy Brown, Director of Sense About Science, the independent charity that promotes the public interest in sound science and evidence. Hi, Tracy. Hello. So, without further ado, let's get on to the evidence. Uh, Tracy, an opener. What is Evidence Week? Well, Evidence Week in Parliament is when we bring cutting-edge research from around the country into Parliament for speed briefings on those things that are coming over the hill um, that MPs really need to get across. In particular, things which are, require a level of expertise that their offices probably don't provide, you know, and they have fantastic information services. We have the House of Commons Library, um, uh, which is uh, superb, but they don't provide a shop front on emerging findings in research. So fundamentally, it's that. It's that delivered to an MP's agenda and it's open by the public. And what are you hoping to get out of Evidence Week this year? Well, this year we're already seeing a huge amount of engagement from MPs, really good sign up for for the briefings. One of the things that has struck us, two key themes come out. One is uh, all the requirements for energy planning. You know, how do you create 950,000 tonnes of carbon? You know, do, do we even have that capacity in the UK and where would it be? Uh, so that has that has definitely connected. So energy themes definitely connected and not surprisingly AI. Mm. You know, how do you spot a deep fake? Uh, very popular on Tuesday. Everybody's talking about AI. I've been playing around with it to, to create images about the UK in the 20, in 2050, which is um, lots of bubbles in the air as far as I can work out. But <laughs> one further question then on, Basically, I suppose how much MPs care about uh, evidence. It's it's an easy critique to make that MPs are mostly interested in the popularity of policies and less interested in whether it actually works or not. Do you think MPs care about this? I think, well, on paper, yes, of course. You know, every mm. every survey that's done every couple of years um, uh, of MPs that ask them about these things, yes, of course, they will sign up to it. Um, in practice, I think it's a different a different ball game. I would want to sort of bend the stick towards, you know, for the most part, MPs are keen. They are keen to know what's going on 
and what's going on around you know i think particularly when you see the sort of interactions around energy that we've seen this week people really want to get a handle on it they want to find a way in other areas like like ai and and generally data science and the use of algorithmic technologies for decision making you know people don't know how to how to find a thread to ask a question so you end up with mp's asking questions about privacy all the time Mm. because that's the only vantage point they think they've got but there are lots of things to do with reliability are we are we lending money is all the banks lending money to people who are not good bet Mm. you know are we denying people social housing based on a flawed algorithm Mm. they haven't got that basis to ask those sorts of questions so I think in that sense when it equips their ability to to raise difficult issues often obviously politicized uh, we have to accept that um, then I think you know they're, they're bought in Something about political salience there, isn't there? I guess. I mean, one to all of you, really. But kick us off, Tracy. Is this a is this a current government issue? Is it an all governments issue? Is there a difference in the party politics on this? It's hard to know, isn't it? it I mean, problems such as the climate targets that we're facing and the energy crisis—they all feel that they've got a newness about them in some mm. respects. They've all come together. Mm. Um, there's an element of um, urgency to these but they're not new are they I mean you know even the sort of regulation of of data infrastructure is not a new thing there's stuff going through at the moment there's a digital uh, uh, bill going through at the moment but this is not um, this is not a new issue it has you know previous administrations uh, and previous governments it has been there but it does feel to me that there is something um, that is making us think is is parliament really 21st century enough Mm. Yeah, there's there's definitely structural issues. It's not party political. I mean, uh, you know, we all remember back to uh, the Blair government and evidence-based policy became this new phrase leading to the cynical policy-based evidence. I think there is something about the difference of when you're in government versus when you're a backbencher. Obviously, the incentives mm-hmm. or when you're in opposition, the incentives for opposition are to critique. So, again, if you look at the reasons why you want to use it, if there's evidence that helps you critique what's going on in government. And if you are a backbencher or in opposition, we'll get into resources in a minute, but the resources available to you are far less than if you mm-hmm. are in government. So there's definitely, I think, more incentives there to, to for them to look for what is good evidence and to be better supported in doing that. Alice, the other thing, I mean, Kath mentioned Blair there. The other thing Blair famously said was what matters is what works, um, uh, which I suppose plays into this, but also talks a little bit about, almost takes some of the politics about it uh, out of it. Do you, think, do you think parliaments have got worse at scrutinising uh, uh, based on evidence? I think there does seem to have been a shift for the worse in the kind of quality of parliamentary scrutiny, particularly in the Commons. I think it's a slightly more mixed bag in in the House of Lords. I suppose one of the things, and as as Kath said, it's not really a, a kind of party political point, is that firstly, the sort of structural issue here is that if you're a government... And you're given the choice between encouraging lots and lots of evidence-based scrutiny or getting your business through as quickly and easily as possible. You're always going to plump for the first option. That's just the incentive. That's that's naturally what you want. And so I think that's quite a big problem. The other thing, though, is, of course, in recent years, we've had a number of issues that government has been dealing with, which are these huge multifaceted issues so you know Brexit and Covid being the most obvious examples and they're things that to some extent have required very quick 
decision making. And so coming back to Kath's point about sort of resources and about time, that has just made it a lot harder for for Parliament to conduct that kind of evidence based scrutiny because they're just having to do things very, very quickly. Yeah, it's one of the things that we, we talk about a lot in terms of ministers, especially in a crisis, the difficulty of taking a decision when you don't have the evidence when because and we saw this in COVID, sometimes the evidence hasn't been built up yet. Um, and that's a really tough ask for them, but it is at the core of their mm. job. And I think the same is true for MPs as well, um, that when you are dealing with issues where there isn't clarity about the evidence base, so it's not just understanding what evidence is out there. And mm. forgive me, Tracy, but I think this is also part of, of Evidence Week, is understanding how to use it, how to interrogate it, and how to operate when the evidence base is limited. Um mm. And, and you are sort of slightly operating in the dark, but you're trying to do it as an intelligent customer and so have a good understanding. Ministers have, got, ministers have got the whole civil service to, to help them with that. Do you think MPs need more resources, more support to... Yeah, I mean, undoubtedly. But, you know, the issue there is around how we sort of publicly conceive of the role of, of MPs. Um, as Tracy's mentioned, the House of Commons Library, they've also got the Parliamentary Office for Science and Technology, all MPs get a staffing budget. So we'll have parliamentary researchers, but they're often people new out of university. And what they're trying to deal with is massive because the role of an MP isn't just sitting there scrutinising. Mm. It is often, you know, it, it is a lot of it is dealing with constituency complaints. There's a lot of po- political stuff is sort of following your own issues and so forth. Mm. So especially when you're confronted with, uh, you know, a piece of legislation coming up, it's, it's hard to find the time to like do all the background research yeah. on it. And that's and, and that is, I mean, you're asking about what's new, what's now. Um, that's also worth bearing in mind is that at the moment with Brexit paperwork and sort of COVID damage to, mm. uh, to communities um, and a recession, you know, people not being able to afford their bills, mm. uh, not finding housing, that means that MPs' post bags are under extraordinary pressure. But not to do down the people who support their MPs, but, you know, we have to recognise that what sometimes happens is someone gets elected and they bring with them the person who worked in admin at the estate agency they were working in, and that person has mm-hmm. to get themselves across parliamentary procedure and process as well as um, it start to interrogate these issues. I think, actually, MPs get a huge amount out of a lot of those people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, real dedication. And yeah. I mean, we've seen this week during Evidence Week, the sign up for, for self-education on the part of the staff has been brilliant too. They obviously feel like they, they yeah. need to get across it. But it's just not realistic. I mean, Alex, mm. Mm. People, people cannot pay, you know, they cannot work. If they've got any data analytics potential, they cannot work for those salaries. Mm. Mm. And if certainly, I mean, uh, I was a civil servant and it felt you felt under enough pressure then when you're in a team of people to kind of get a bill through and to um, respond to some of the scrutiny. I've mm. always had huge empathy for those, you know, opposition or backbench support <clears throat> support staff who were trying to do all of that and a thousand and one other things as well. And there was just, just one of them. Just, I'm going to come back to Parliament in a minute, but I don't want to leave sort of what goes on inside government. Again, I just said I was a civil servant. I filled out my fair share of shonky impact assessments, um, uh, <laughs> justifying that sort of policy-based evidence. Um, uh, what would you do? I mean, impact assessments have yeah. always struck me as pretty inadequate. Tracy. Yeah, what, well, what let's do we talk about do? this. This is juicy. <laughs> this is juicy because actually this autumn we're going to see the Regulatory Policy Committee completely change in terms mm. of what it's doing. So it's going to be able to look much earlier 
in the process, uh, the mm. policy options. And therefore, um, at the moment, as I understand it from you know, talking around this stuff with them, um, I think what they're going to be looking at is what do they put before Parliament you know, so that they can actually push back and say, have you considered, you know, act more like a peer review mm. committee. And then at what stage is it right for them to share that with Parliament? You know, we have to think about that, don't we? Mm. Um, you know, we want to have that private space where you have an opportunity in the civil service or as a minister to reflect on your proposals before they're you know, pulled apart or or given to the media to discuss. But on the other hand, you know, it's important that Parliament sees this stuff early. But I do think we're going to see a change in impact assessments. They've been gamed so much. Mm. Uh, They're they're just not worth, you know, anything now. And And one of the things we talk about a lot, and there is no, we all all look for a silver bullet on it, is about evaluation. Uh, And how do you build, again, I'll ask you the the unfair uh, question, but... How do you build evaluation properly into policy development? We all think it's a good thing, but it never happens for all sorts of understandable reasons of time and, and so on. But it, it, it leads to worse policy. So what do we need? To yeah, do to this is this is my my um, uh, both excitement and worry about the RPC changes because my excitement is that this invites a conversation about how to join up efforts at evaluation across government. Obviously, mm-hmm. the Treasury's initiative with the evaluation task force mm-hmm. and so on. That's an opportunity to start pushing um, clear plans for evaluation as as part of an early stage thinking, because what that does, and we know this from from having reviewed transparency together with the Institute of Government, um, looking at policies, is when people are clear about how the policy is going to be evaluated, they tend to be clear about the problem they're trying to yeah. solve in the first place, mm. right? And that's a lot easier for Parliament to scrutinise. It's a lot easier for us as a public to understand whether a policy is working or not easier actually for government to know whether you know what it is they're trying to achieve and and, and implementation but I I think that's a great thing of course the other thing that comes with that is yes you can make all these changes but no more resources yeah Um, so whether or not that's something that um, can be scrambled together from the existing initiatives I don't know yeah but a shared evidence based on evaluation would be incredibly useful because I mean that's a lot of what parliament and select committees do is effectively post hoc look at you know the, the the policy how it was conceived how it came about and then how it turned out and they end up using a lot of anecdotal evidence because they're getting witnesses in mm. you know and and some of that will be data but then you end up in this battle where government and the select committee or other organizations are using different data um and and that you know for the public's point of view that can be incredibly confusing about what is the truth here about how well this has turned up? Mm. But I mean, the other thing to to say is it's not just about these organisations. It's also about the culture shift because, mm. you know, we talk all the time about ministers moving on too rapidly. And one of the problems is that, of course, for a minister, if you're all about bringing in this policy, you're lucky if during your however long, two years maybe in, in a post, you see a policy from start to finish, let alone hang mm. around to see it evaluated five years later. We, we will come back to Ministerial and Civil Service churn many times. And I've, I've covered that already. <laughs> but Alice, to sort of bridge us into the next subject, talking mm. about MPs, you, I think you mentioned earlier zombie parliament, that phrase, we're at that part of the political cycle where that's what people are talking about. I don't love the phrase, but one of the interesting things at the moment is that we perhaps have a placid and soporific House of Commons, but mm. an extremely active House of Lords. What's going on there? Yeah, it's a really interesting one. So overnight on Wednesday, the Lords sat until about 4am. That's not the first time in the last few weeks that that has happened. And if you talk to MPs, you talk to peers, there is very much this sense that 
detailed scrutiny of legislation at the moment is happening in the House of Lords. It is happening much more there than it is happening in the House of Commons. And that is why we are seeing the Lords have so many late nights or early mornings, whichever way you want to look at it, while actually we're often seeing the Commons rise fairly early. If you look at what's happening in the Commons, you've got a lot of backbench debates, general debates, and those things matter, but they're not kind of spending the time on detailed scrutiny. And I think coming back to the sort of structural issues that we were talking about earlier, one of the things that you have to bear in mind here is that there is a huge procedural difference between the Commons and the Lords, which is that the Commons, the government has control. The government decides what is being debated, when it is being debated, and on legislation, how long it is being debated for. In the Lords, they just don't have that same element of control. And so peers can basically spend as much time as they would like going through a piece of legislation, going through all of the different amendments and talking about them. You just don't have that in the Commons. And so again, it it comes back to what we've already been talking about, which is you can provide sort of evidence to MPs, you can think about the resources and so on that they have. And that is incredibly important. But if the government doesn't want to make time for MPs to use that, they won't make time for MPs to use that. And there's not very much that MPs can do about it. And last quick one on this. Does it matter if the House of Commons is quiet? Uh, there is a critique that governments legislate too much. They don't focus enough on ex- execution. Um, our current Prime Minister has uh, got his management consultant's hat on and is uh, trying uh, more or less successfully, less perhaps, uh, to focus on his uh, five priorities. Should, is, it, is it wrong that he's doing that rather than legislating? I think it's important not to view these sorts of things like general debates and backbench debates as a sort of, you know, just filler or as just a waste of of the Commons time. Because even if MPs are not making decisions on things, even if they are not being asked to look at legislation, it is still important that Parliament has the opportunity to sort of debate issues of the day. That still matters. But I think where the problem comes is not so much in terms of the fact that you know, the amount of legislation that the government is producing, it's actually where that legislation has got to. And the fact that there are basically these huge legislative backlogs now in the House of Lords, while the Commons is not doing the kind of same thing. And there's a massive asymmetry there. And I think that's really sort of indication of the problem. So we'll move on and look a little closer about who exactly we want or need in Parliament. Kath, lots of MPs are leaving Parliament. Is that good? Bad? Well, it depends on the MPs. It, I mean, it's sad <laughs> when you are seeing a sort of cohorts mm. and including quite a few younger MPs yeah. um, who have decided that they need to move on. I mean, in some cases, great. If there's other things that you want to do, we always talk about experience. It's good to have life experience outside. Maybe they'll come back. But it's sad when it is people saying that the reason they're moving on is the workload or, uh, you know, feeling like they're not making a difference or things like the kind of abuse that they get. So I think those all make a big difference. Obviously, we also need new people coming into Parliament. So um, in that sense, a refresh is always valuable. I think the interesting thing, there's lots of stuff around the sort of politics of generational changes and so forth. But we saw from 2019, because it was a generation who came in uh, through COVID, and that mm. was their earliest experience of it. We've already talked quite a lot about what that did to them in terms of their 
engagement with Parliament, how they voted, whether they were more rebellious, how they thought about party politics. It will be interesting to see whether that's a sort of more of a generational shift that is happening um, and that our, our politicians are changing and mm. are maybe becoming more connected to constituencies or what is going on. So I think th- those are the interesting questions about it. And have we seen, you mentioned 2019, have we seen previous parliaments with such high turnovers? I guess big big majorities, 1997. Yeah, I mean... Do do the historian for us, Cam. (laughs) Every time, um, you know, it's entirely going to depend on on the election result. Every time you get a large majority or a large swing towards any party, then you see it. There's there's loads of sort of more specific issues around whether or not the makeup of, of MPs coming from Scotland changes away from the SNP back towards other parties. Um, you know, similarly, if there's changes around sort of different parts of, of, of England, that's going to be very interesting in terms of the makeup of it. If you see more Lib Dem MPs coming through, that could sort of shift our politics a bit further. So again, it's really about that rather than, to be honest, I haven't crunched the numbers to see whether there's those generational changes that occur within parties, because obviously we're not just seeing, you know, the prospect of could there be a big swing towards other parties and away from the governing party. We're also seeing a number of Conservative MPs saying that they're going to step down. And so that will mean newer generations of Conservative MPs coming through as well. And I I don't know... Uh, whether we've seen an equivalent of that, but I'm sure we will have done at various points. Do we think that there's perhaps a bit of a clue already um, to some part of the problem in that a couple of people have refused front bench roles on the basis that they can't actually sustain uh, a life Mm. worth living and be a good constituency MP and do that too? Um, and this is obviously before we get to the point about whether you stand for election again. So, so I wonder whether you know we are to sort of pick up our earlier points about what's being asked here. Mm. It's unrealistic. It's not well supported. It barely competes with the the salary of a head teacher in a small school. You know, you might as well ask yourself why you're not a head teacher in a small school. Yeah. yeah. And I think on that as well, as you mentioned earlier, Tracy, you know, the volume of casework MPs are facing has always been high. But anecdotally, the last few years, it has just exponentially increased because of things like Brexit, because of things like COVID and now the cost of living. And the pressure that that puts on MPs and their small number of staffers is huge, not least because a lot of that casework is very urgent. It's often really complicated and it's people's lives in the most kind of tangible sense of the Mm. word. You know, you're having constituents come to you saying they might be evicted from their house. The pressure that that puts on you to, to kind of do that work is is absolutely huge and so it's not really surprising as you say that there are lots of MPs who are just the amount of pressure stress they are under that's before you even think about whether they have ministerial roles or select committee roles or anything like that it's often hard to forget and it's not something that tends to kind of win many friends when MPs talk about how hard their jobs are but they are hard jobs. Yeah, we had um, Sajid Javid early in, earlier in the week talking about the, the pay of MPs and he said he would double the pay and halve the number of them. Um, uh, you know, I don't know if there's half the number of MPs, how that's going to help the workload. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I, to be honest, I don't think pay is the issue. I don't think people go into this kind of job for that. I think the biggest deterrents are the workload, public profile and therefore potentially the abuse that you get. Mm. 
and a lot of the same kind of cynicism that the, you know we talk about in terms of the way MPs are viewed and I think there isn't enough done to help people understand that you can make a difference that it can be incredibly rewarding and those are the things that I think motivate people the most and in terms of relieving those burdens it feels like resources staffing is the key issue you know the expenses scandal it added to the cynicism around the way in which MPs were viewed but it also added to this sense of don't give them too much money you know because it's somehow wrong for them to be able to to spend these kinds of public sums but you need that in order to recruit good staff to help you do the job well and retain them and retain and them retain. yeah and it, there yeah. was a really interesting uh, bit during covid where ipsa who sort of sets mps pay and, and expense levels and so on released some additional money to mps which was essentially in recognition of the fact that they were working you know at home and so were their staff and they needed equipment and so on to help that but also in recognition of the fact that the amount of work that mps were doing was increased and of course actually that ended up being reported as mps are being paid more mm-hmm. which was not the case but actually the the general reaction to that was one of kind of cynicism rather than this is actually a really helpful practical step that will help MPs better serve their constituents so it's also the ways that we talk about these issues I think are, are quite important. You both mentioned uh, MPs pay there and Sajid Javid uh, the event earlier in the week he was quite interesting on this let's uh, have a quick listen to uh, what he actually said. An MP salary is I think eighty seven, eighty eight thousand at the moment. And again, it's a lot of money. It's more than doubled the national average. But you get what you pay for. Right? You get what you pay for. You know, if you want, if people want to see uh, um, you know, GPs or, or nurses, or um, um, you know, senior nurses or uh, you know, head teachers uh, or an accountant, you know, give up their job to want to come into parliament, you know, they're going to take a massive fall in their lifestyle to do it. And a lot of people are not willing to do that. So, you know, you either get, you attend there to get in Parliament there for either really rich people that don't need money and, and therefore they don't care if their salary is 88000 or 28000 or or you will get people that were earning sort of 30000 80000 is a big jump, but they might not come with the skills that Parliament needs. So if I had my way, I would half the number of MPs and double the salaries. Right? It wouldn't cost the taxpayer a penny and you'd get a much higher quality of Parliament and ministers. Tracy, pay... Uh, MP support um, Sense About Science have uh, got a survey on the public's view on uh, MPs and all of this out uh, at the moment uh, not not the highest opinion of MPs Well actually it, it wasn't too bad overall um, <laughs> and we were we were exploring really what public expectations are of MPs and how they make decisions, how they think MPs make decisions. And to be honest, it's been fairly stable. I mean, there was a sort of, we've done this with Ipsos over a number of years, and there was a bit of a blip during during the pandemic when people thought that the evidence and experts were playing more of a role, and they were approving of that. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the thing that really struck me this time around was that the um, around two thirds of people felt that MPs were not well equipped to ask questions on key areas like the economy, energy, AI and data. Um, And that they were concerned. I mean, that's just interesting. And I I expected a lot of don't know in response Mm. to that question. And it didn't come back that way at all. It came back as two thirds. So it rather kind of underlined our point that MPs ought to go to briefings at Evidence Week. <laughs> well, it wasn't our, entirely our intention. We were actually just trying to explore really whether the public had a view on this subject. 
Um, so, so I, th- but I think that's interesting. And you know, at a time when everyone's concerned about having confidence in in the democratic process and so on, um, that's that's a bit of low hanging fruit in some senses, isn't it? To try to look at ways that um, MPs can be assisted more. To broaden it out just a little bit, then uh, I agree with everything you've said about MP support. Um, but there is a bit of a sense that that's dealing with the symptom rather than the cause. Um, are we asking MPs to do the wrong job? Is this because local government is failing or is it because people's expectations, because they know who their MP is or at least the, the job is more prominent, they're directing things at MPs that actually could be better fixed uh, elsewhere. MP can't do much about you getting evicted. Um, that's a, um, a, a question for elsewhere in government, what do you all think? I think that's definitely part of that. So... I think in some ways what you've seen, particularly over the last few years, is that MPs have kind of become almost a public service of first and last resort. So part of it is, yes, you know, issues with kind of local authorities, you know, losing a lot of their resources, which means that people go to their MPs. But also I remember some MPs that I've spoken to, they were saying if you take something like COVID as an example, because there was such a lack of clarity at different times about what the rules are, actually constituents were going to their MPs and saying, can you explain whether I'm allowed to do X, Y or Z? Because they didn't know... Who in turn were going to the IFG explainer. Well, indeed. We are are always a public service. Um, But, you know, that, that kind of produced a big burden. And then I think as well, there has also been this shift in the last few years that people feel like, okay we don't know who to go to the mp is the person to go to and they're they're almost a kind of gateway for people to access a load of of other services and so yes you do have to think more broadly about the state of other services and the kind of knock-on effects that is having the kind of information that is given to people about actually who they can talk to and and where they can go and the other thing just finally um again that sort of mps will tell you about covid is that it's it's started to shift perceptions about how available MPs are to their constituents because we've always had this thing in the Commons where, you know, Monday to Thursday, you're in London, Friday, the weekend, you're back in your constituency. Actually, we didn't have that during COVID because everything was done virtually. And so there is sort of now an increasing assumption that MPs will be available for constituency business at the same time as they will be available for parliamentary business. And so again, it's just another source of kind of pressure and and workload. There are also some other quite specific things, which is um, NHS issues and getting appointments and things like that. So, so MPs are, you know, that that has got to be fixed, and MPs mm. are sort of are, are stepping into the breach there mm. quite often. But having said that, there are times when MPs raising this stuff on the floor of the house is is really significant, or even asking questions at the library. I mean, you know, the the library has sort of described itself as a bit of an early warning system of stuff not going yeah. well, like Windrush, for example. Windrush as a problem appeared in Parliament before it appeared in government as an issue. And so I think, and and similarly with various benefit changes that have happened, that when they've not been working, that's cropped up in Parliament uh, before it's been apparent to government. And it's clear MPs are far more connected to their local communities than civil servants, for example, are, or often than ministers are, which leads to my final question to to you, Kath, on this uh, area, which is about... Uh, the quality of ministers. What does all this mean for the quality of ministers, the pressures that are or aren't on MPs? Well, I, I mean, they are also MPs. So it's the same issues that we're talking about. All ministers also have the constituency bag to, to deal with. Um, it, you know, in some respects, it makes it easier. You know how to write to another government department if you're already a minister. But at the same time, it's it's supposed to be equal. It's, it's not, you know, it's not supposed to give you an, any added uh, ability to to resolve some of these issues 
But similarly with MPs, we come back to this fundamental. Uh, these are people we want to be our representatives. So we want mm. them to come from all walks of life. Mm. You know, it's quite understandable. There is a pushback at the idea that you should be recruiting only people who are experts in the business of government. And the public are often turned off by the idea of sort of career politicians, um, or at least it becomes a bit of a sort of cliche to throw around. If that's the case, if that's what you want, you want people who come from all different kinds of walks of life, you've got to support them. And that's why the IFG Academy exists, which is one of the things that we do learning and development arm to make sure that we are able to help people get to grips with government, to understand what the role of a minister is, to sort of translate the skills they've built up as being an MP into the role of, of being a minister, not to turn them into, you know, these career professionals necessarily, mm. but to provide that that added support to help you get to grips with, with what can be an incredibly demanding role. Elegantly plugged. Thank Kat. you. Very good. <laughs> I'm very good at plugging the IFG Academy. Visit the website. (laughs) (laughs) Let's end with a quick look at how or how well Prime Ministers are scrutinised. Alice, Rishi Sunak was in front of the Liaison Committee this week. That was a Blair-era innovation, which I always felt he brought in because he was quite good in that format and uh, perhaps uh, less comfortable in others. How did he do? Well, I think for the Liaison Committee these days, what Prime Ministers want is to try and make as little news as possible. And I think Rishi Sunak did a pretty good job of that this week. There wasn't a huge amount that came out of that session. The one slight caveat to that is that he had a bit of back and forth with Sir Chris Bryant, the chair of the Commons Standards Committee, where they were talking about the Prime Minister's uh, refusal to vote on the the motion about Boris Johnson and the Privileges Committee that was before the House of Commons last week. So they they had a little bit of a back and forth over that. But aside from that, actually, it was all relatively quiet. And I think probably the Prime Minister will see that as a bit of a win. Yeah, it's interesting. I think, I mean, that that format tends to reward the eloquent, well-prepared, slightly swattish Yeah, and I mean, uh, it's got to be remembered that you know, Rishi Sunak is benefiting from a predecessor. Well, it's exactly. The, yeah. I mean, it's going to be the question, really, which is that the you've got the you've got the liaison committee um, uh, benefiting that sort of politician and yeah. actually exposing Boris Johnson in in many ways. Arguably, Johnson was a better performer at the more theatrical prime minister's questions, and Sunak isn't doing quite so well there. So, which I mean, uh, Tracy and, and Kath, which which is better for scrutiny and evidence uh, gathering and, and policy making ultimately. Well, that's rolling quite a lot of different things up together, isn't it? Because um, putting people under pressure, putting the Prime Minister under pressure over sort of broad policy narratives, uh, over broad policy narratives is really um, important as well as actually checking out that the sums add up. So and I think we don't want to get too confused about it. I worry I worry a bit about the lack of leadership in um, in being able to take a debate through the House, though. Mm. You know, it, what, it, what does it say? I mean, we're already facing a situation where committee reports are not really owned across the House. There's not time for them, mm. much to the regret. I'm noticing, I don't know if I'm right, if this is just anecdotal, but I am noticing that government's responses to committee reports is becoming quite rude, 
quite slapdash, dismissive, mm. um, really not weighing up quite quite forensic work and thoughtful work that's been done by the committees, who are often chaired by conservatives. So yeah. they're not particular; they are thoughtful um, mm. in, and helpful in the way they present their critique. Um, but none of this is going on, on the floor of the house. I just I think it's for me at the moment seeing that that behaviour. It, it, it's it's just summing up a kind of um, a, a lack of willingness. To, or, or it's just not the right right thing. I think I would like to see um, a lot more scrutiny happening in the chamber um, as well. Kath, what do you think about you know Prime Minister's come under criticism for missing Prime Minister's questions and not being as present in the Commons as he as he might have been. He won't be there next week uh, either. Do you think this government is particularly anxious to avoid that kind of scrutiny, or has yeah. it, is it was ever thus? You can look at the stats for it, and he is slightly down on uh, a couple of. I think he's about where Gordon Brown was at, at various mm-hmm. points. It's something like eighty-seven percent, but you know, on the basis of a, a, a year's worth of data, um, whereas others were up at sort of ninety or above. So it's not massive margins anyway. Um, just throwing in the actual evidence, but it's all about perception, really, and. Um, it, when it's fine to be away, um, mm. that you know the the role of a prime minister is massively busy. They need to be travelling internationally. They need to be at other things. I think it's when it's perceived that you could have done it differently. You could have been there, and it looks like you're ducking it. And when the narrative comes in that it looks like you you're not comfortable with PMQs, and it goes to what what Trace is saying. It, it's great to have a prime minister who is across the detail. Mm. Um, you know, reports are that that Sunak. It really gets into the very meaty, um, many thousands of pages uh, reports that he gets given uh, by his private office. But from a public point of view, from a media point of view, from an electoral strategy point of view, obviously prime ministers these days also have to be seen to be good performers and to be across the narrative of their government as well and able to respond to challenge even if that challenge comes in the form of a an incredibly cheesy joke which is often the way at pmqs so yeah it it is going to add to the persona and to the the question marks of his competency but more within his own party i you know i don't know what the numbers are these days of, of how many members of the actual public watch pmqs but um, I think it's more the way that it drives media narratives is, is, is more important. Points beyond, Alison, I'll come to you. The, um, we've talked a lot about Parliament. Mm. Uh, what about the media? Uh, do you miss the COVID press conferences? <laughs> no, they sort of seem like a bit of a weird fever dream now that those all happened. Again, that's that's been quite a notable shift in that obviously you saw a government that was really focused on, you know, direct comms with the public, which made an awful lot of sense during the middle of, you know, a massive public health emergency. But of course, what we saw then was policy being announced kind of to the press, being briefed out and so on, not in Parliament as it should be. And that's basically continued. Um, and, you know, you see Lindsay Hoyle getting very annoyed about that on an almost weekly basis. There's not really anything he can do about it. Um, and so, again, it's it's coming back to what we've just been talking about, which is, you know, there's there's no one way to be an MP. There's no one way to be a minister or indeed a prime minister. And some prime ministers value their role as a sort of parliamentarian mm. much more than others. I would say we've had a run of prime ministers of late who have perhaps not been as focused on their kind of role as a parliamentarian and in sort of upholding uh, their their role, you know, in the House of Commons. 
And so I think it's all kind of bound up together in that. And actually what you're then seeing is prime ministers and ministers who are generally much more focused on that kind of media performance, you know, so on going on Good Morning Britain or not Good Morning Britain, whichever, you know, it might be, uh, or being there in those kind of press conferences and less focused on actually, yeah, taking something through the house. Kath, does it matter? The thing I loved about the COVID press conferences was it gave a public, gave all of us an opportunity to see the government's evolving relationship with data. You know, from those earliest slides where everyone was critiquing the, the quality of the slide deck, let alone the yeah. inability to be able to get a clicker so that Chris Whitty didn't have to keep asking for the next slide. But you did see the kind of data they were producing. And over time, it became incredibly sophisticated. We had the, the dashboard and so forth. And Tracy, I think that legacy has stayed in government, hasn't it? And be nice to, for the public mm. to see that there is that going on still. To some extent, yes. And I think it's also fed a certain public expectation interestingly and not just among people who are kind of stats geeks and and so on and that's what's showing up in the survey that we did but it also I I think we're seeing you know people actually appreciating their MPs as parliamentarians Mm. not just as constituency MPs and I think that's news to MPs actually we've often pointed this out you know you are expected to ask those important questions but I don't think MPs really feel very appreciated for doing so one thing I would really like to register, though, as, as a sort of learning from that whole period of the pandemic that I don't think people have drawn out, is that when the when Parliament got their act together, uh, six weeks it took, but eventually when they got their act together, when the SciTech and the health committees sat together and interrogated the government, mm. I don't think the media came anywhere near... Mm being able to ask that level of question. Mm. I thought there was excellent. If you want to see what good looks like, mm. I think that, that's what it was. And, and there was, a, I mean, the quality of the chairs, that's obviously that was when Jeremy Hunt was still mm. out of government, yeah. uh, Greg Clark as well on the science and technology. Um, and it, it was the combination of the two of them and, and the quality of obviously their staff, because again, uh, you know, talking about the resources, but the select committees also don't have a massive amount of resource. So again, shout out to all the clerks and committee specialists and so forth who Mm. put in a shift. And the procedural innovation of allowing committees to kind of guest so that MPs on one committee can go and sit on the other and that they can join together to ask those things. Which solves a lot of the cross-cutting limitations that there are. You know, that that tussle between wanting to look at departmental budgets and actually ask penetrating questions about a government strategy. I'm going to bring it to a conclusion on that high, not least because we gave evidence to that uh, joint select committee. So uh, uh, we're going to take our small uh, small slice of of the credit on that. Thank you. Um, That's it for today. Uh, Thank you for listening at home. And thank you to Kath Haddon, Alice Lilly, and especially to Tracy Brown. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify and all major platforms. Be sure to subscribe. Give us a good review if you can. We'll also be tweeting from Twitter, threads and who knows where else by the end of next week. Check out our sister channel IFG Events too and you can find a recording of the Sajid Javid interview that we were talking about earlier as well as fascinating discussions with Ed Miliband and Chris Skidmore who both came to speak at the IFG this week for our Net Zero conference. Register for some fantastic IFG events that we've got coming up next week. Keynote speeches from Labour Deputy Leader Angela Rayner and from the Attorney General Victoria Prentice. But until then, it's time to sit back and enjoy the ashes if you're into cricket, watch some Wimbledon if you're into tennis, or, more pressingly, read any number of great IFG reports to know more about how to improve scrutiny in Parliament and the use of evidence in policymaking. Something for everybody. Have a great weekend.